the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and Happy New Year and welcome to the first Brexit Breakdown of 2018. And have we got a big name guest to start the year? Have we got a big name guest to start the year? Yes, it's Chukaramuna, Remainer Prince. He's one of the leading politicians arguing against Brexit. He co-chairs the all-party parliamentary group on Brexit. He's got a different name, but that's basically what it is. He co-chairs that along with uh, Conservative Anna Subri. He's MP for Streatham, which is in Lambeth in London, the area that returned the biggest Remain vote in the UK at the EU referendum. Myself and UK in a Changing Europe director Anand Menon went to see Chuka in his Westminster office before Christmas and we had a meaty chat about Brexit, obviously, a Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn and Crystal Palace Football Club, which I was particularly pleased about. And I should warn you that there are swear words in this podcast. I think this is the first Brexit breakdown containing swear words, not coming from me or Anand. But uh, just to warn you, there is a couple of uh, bad words later on. Plus, if you're wondering if 2018 will continue the trend for weird politics, well, you're in luck, because this first podcast of the year features me shouting Austin Maestro at Chukaramuna, and I don't think anyone had that in their 2018 political bingo. I'll be back at the end of this chat with uh, observations and gubbins, but we started the interview at the beginning, talking about why Chuka is still for Remain 18 months after the referendum result. The referendum result is often kind of written up as if there was some overwhelming majority for us to leave the European Union. There was a majority, but it wasn't overwhelming. It was quite mm-hmm. a small majority. And it was quite a binary question that was given to people. And they decided to opt a majority of people who participated in the referendum to leave based on a particular prospectus. I think broadly speaking, the prospectus was there'd be billions of pounds extra going into public services, which is why the £350 million extra per week for the NHS was a very important signature policy of the Leave campaign. Dominic Cummings, the director of Leave, is clear if they hadn't made that pledge, they wouldn't have won the referendum. People believed there would be a drastic reduction in immigration. Uh, people believed that we would be able to enjoy the same economic benefits as we do um, in the European Union, outside of the European Union, because the Germans want to sell us their cars, the Italian their Prosecco, the French their Brie or whatever. And then finally, you know, we would be free to do all these new trade deals with the likes of America who would ride to our rescue. So that, if you like, was a prospectus. Um, the way I put it is the car that was sold to the British people, you know, as part of Brexit. You were going to get this shiny new Audi with all the added extras, leather seats, alloy wheels, DAB, all the rest of it. Now the question is, the car that you're now sitting in, does it reflect the car that you thought you bought? I mean, here's the problem with you Remainers, is you say it's going to be a shiny new Audi. Why wasn't it a shiny new Aston Martin, or a, or a Jaguar, or a... Do we make any well, other cars in this Jaguar, country? I don't Jaguar, know. Jaguar, 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 Indian. Jaguar, 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 Jaguar is okay. an Indian. Oh, I don't. Do we make any cars these days? <laughs> but that's quite, that, that's quite illustrative. Shiny Austin Maestro. It's, it's quite illustrative though, isn't it? Because it does just show um, how interconnected we are. And if you take automotive, and let's not forget Jaguar, Aston Martin, you know, other British um, car makers or 
uh, car makers owned abroad but based here, they rely on supply chains, not just in the UK but in the European Union, and that is a sector that is absolutely clear. If we leave the European Union, it will be disastrous for for their sector. So, so are you saying the British people were conned? I I I I almost think that is an irrelevance, really. Um, Let me let me answer the question then, and and partly it's an irrelevance because I think what people want us to do is to get on and try and deliver Brexit in the terms that it was sold and look to the future. My argument about the future is we have a duty in Parliament to try to deliver Brexit in the terms that it was sold to people, but if it isn't what it was as it was sold to the British people, Mm -hmm. we're perfectly entitled to say to the British people do you really want to buy the clapped-out old banger you're sitting in now, given you thought it was an Aldi that you were buying? I think that's, we are perfectly within our rights to do that. And I certainly feel within my rights to do that, given that I represent the most remaining constituency in the country. So um, I, I almost think whether you were lied... You know, take the £350 million extra per week for the NHS. You know, we know Boris Johnson's terribly sensitive about that. Dominic Cummings <laughs> has written about this as to how, you know, Boris is very sensitive to being called a liar... And in his abortive leadership bid last year, they were already thinking how they could go some way to delivering on that promise in mm. his campaign. Yeah. Um, now, whether he was lying or not, we know by dint of the fact there's going to be a giant divorce bill to pay, that that is not going to be a thing that can be delivered. Whether you were lied to or not, whether it's possible or not. The problem, the problem, the issue I have with going straight to you a con you were lied to and making that the, the, the subject is it, it sounds like you're saying to people, well, I was intelligent enough to know yeah. Yeah. I was being lied to and you weren't. Whereas I kind of think that slightly misses the point. The point is, if that's the basis on which you voted and you had every right to believe that Boris and the others were telling you these things in good faith, the simple fact now, and of course a referendum was based on hypotheticals, we now have facts given that we're into this negotiation, the fact is it is not going to happen. But just on that, I mean, I, I get nobody really wants to relive the, the campaign, I think it's fair to say, but if a deception was carried out on <coughs> the country, the people of the country, that's very serious. And I, is it okay to say, well, it happened, let's move on, we have to deal with the, uh, the results of that no, deception? I don't think it's... No, of course, I think, I think uh, to mislead and deceive people is a very serious charge, indeed. But I think people just look to the future. And all I know is that, in a way, you can have the argument about whether you were deceived and should these people be banged up. I think Alan Sugar, the entrepreneur, the apprentice presenter, suggested that people like Boris should be banged up for it. But we can consume all the time on that issue, and the fact is the clock is ticking. Mm Have you watched The Apprentice? There's all sorts of deception in The Apprentice. He doesn't turn up at half past five in the no. morning. Oh, and, 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 perhaps, and perhaps that's why, I, I, why you're almost making your own argument, which is, you know, to get into this whole where you deceived, where you lied to. I mean, it just where did it get you when so the clock is ticking? How many of your colleagues do you reckon, even amongst the ones who won't say so, are with you, agree with you on this? Your parliamentary colleagues? Overwhelming, I think, an overwhelming majority of colleagues. I'd say 90% easily of the Parliamentary Labour Party, and I reckon, you know, at least half the part of the, part of the Tory Parliamentary Party do. Oof. And, Oof. Do you, and do you think, well, let's deal with your side first, are you confident that a significant number of those will get so fed up if the party line remains the same that they'll start speaking out more publicly? 
Well, I think a fairly significant chunk of MPs have already done mm-hmm. so. Um, you know, I rocked the boat a bit by putting down the amendment to the Queen's speech that I did in June, uh, the target of which was the government to mm-hmm. flush out this nonsense that you can have the exact same benefits of the single market and the customs union without being in there. Um, and there were 50 Labour MPs who rebelled. And for a parliamentary party of 230-odd MPs, that's a pretty significant rebellion. So, I, I, you know, I think there are... And, and as you know, partly, you know, as a result of that, we did get a change in position mm-hmm. um, insofar as the Labour Party was concerned over the summer, at least in respect of the transition period. Mm-hmm. Um, I suspect that may have had something to do with the fact that there were noises at the point that that policy change was made in relation to transition about Theresa May doing some big intervention before Parliament resumed mm. in early September. And there was a real danger if Labour had not changed its position, adopted at least part of what we had sought in the Queen's speech, mm. that after the Prime Minister's Florence speech, the Labour Party would have been more hard Brexit than the Conservative <laughs> Party, which would have been quite unacceptable to, I expect, the majority of the party, not just in here in Parliament but in the country. Well, since we're talking about the Labour Party, let's go there. What is the Labour Party position at the moment? Do you know? Does anybody know? Well, the Labour, let's just be clear about where the Labour Party's position started. There were certain, uh, how could I put it, things that were asserted um, that you can't stay in the single market uh, because of the challenges of restricting free movement. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, that was being, before the election, that was being ruled out, not just in respect of transition, but as a permanent proposition. Yeah. Um, objections were raised to us remaining in the customs union as well, for slightly different reasons. Um, and that was, you know, that was the position, which, which was fairly unacceptable, not just to, to me and the colleagues here, but a whole cross-section of the Labour Party, going from Manuel Cortes, who is the General Secretary yeah. of the TSSA Union, which houses momentum through to people on the centre-left of the party. So uh, there has been a discussion, and in fairness to Jeremy, I think he's been fairly pragmatic on this, and now we're in a much better position, which is we shouldn't be ruling any options out. And we've actually said, positively ruled in customs union single market membership for transition, um, but uh, at least they are maintaining an open mind in terms of what happens after that, which is which is progress, and um, I'm pleased about that. I, I'm slightly concerned, more generally, not just about the Labour Party, that a transition period is being talked about as some kind of safe harbour. Mm. You know, some you know, don't worry if we don't have the bones on the deal, and you're worried about jumping off a cliff because there's this wonderful place called transition. Mm. The problem with transition is that as Brexit is currently configured, transition comes after you've left. And how can you transition to anything if you don't know your end destination? Um, and I think your UK is in a much weaker position to negotiate a final deal once it's out. And it seems to be almost accepted that that is what is going to happen. Uh, whereas, you know, if you look at the actual exit day, the 29th of March, 2019, that's a totally arbitrary date. If you jump off a cliff, presumably you're transitioning to the ground. The bit, this is the, the bit in between is a transition. Yeah, right? you make it sound very soft. <laughs> it could be. Uh, no, I don't think that's true. I think the transition hard. just makes the walk to the cliff edge slightly longer. longer the cliff right. is exactly the same. It's just 
slightly further away well, from you. I'd, I'd say the transition is a bit on the way down, which might be quite pleasant, actually. Obviously, you but didn't if, know what was going to hit. But, but if post-transition we leave single market and customs union, it's the same cliff edge, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, you still end up the same result. You still end up on the ground if you accept it. Exactly, and that's that's the issue um, for me with transition. It, it, people, often it's used as a ruse to, to keep the kind of Romani type people happy. But actually, the truth is, transition is no safe harbour because we're out at that point. But isn't that precisely the ruse that the Labour Party is now using? Uh, I don't know if it is a ruse that the, we're using, but I think we've got to be mindful that, you know, just we've got to be very, very clear what the extreme Brexitists, you know, extreme Brexiteer strategy here is. And, you know, this is clearly the game plan, mainly being driven by Michael Gove and, and supported by Boris Johnson. They operate like a kind of president and prime minister type of act, don't they? They just want to ensure we're out at all costs on the 29th of March, Mm. 2019. That is why they've been relatively peaceful and Mm. not too troublesome in respect of the divorce bill. It's why they have kind of accepted that during an implementation period, which is basically the same as a transition period, we'll stay in the single market and the customs union. In, in, in it won't you know, be badged that but into all intents and purposes that will be what it is the reason they've adopted this position is their absolute goal is to make sure that we're out on the 29th of March 2019 because their worry is the longer we're in the more people get to see what Brexit is like the worries about what will happen to the economy etc that's, that's what's going on here that's what people voted for that's because they are great Democrats people didn't vote to leave on a specified date in a chaotic manner in a way that would undermine a negotiating position in respect of any final arrangement. They didn't vote for that. They didn't vote to be poorer. They voted for £350 million extra per week. They voted, some would say, for a drastic reduction in immigration, which is not going to happen. Not that I think it's desirable, mind you. They voted for something that I just increasingly do not believe is deliverable. Just, just on this, I mean... And it's not just a competence thing. It's a complete red herring to think, yeah, okay. but for a more competent government and a strong Prime Minister, this would all be plain sailing. I think many of these difficulties would be really much the same. Isn't the problem you've got that public opinion is almost in exactly the opposite place? I mean, we just produced a piece today with John Curtis. where he I've said, read it. So you've got this growing frustration with how Brexit is yeah. being done among the public, but I actually think the underlying quite a, figures aren't really... No, well, the interesting thing is, I think there were some substantial things that arise from the research that you guys um, published by John Curtis, um, and, that, and that is that uh, uh, clearly people's confidence that we will get a good deal. Remember, it was asserted, of course we get what we want. BMW are going to be in Angela Merkel's office saying, give the Brits what they want because of all those cars. And now people think, well, actually, we're not going to get a good deal. Uh, economically, all these doomsayers, the Project Fear Mafia, who were banging on about the economy. What a load of rubbish that was. Now we can see from Curtis's research, people actually do think this is going to entail a pretty negative hit on the economy. And then, of course, on the competence. Well, of course, after the general election loss, you would expect... I mean, look, clearly, Theresa May, it is not, she's not a competent prime minister, mm-hmm. even on the most generous analysis. So that, that, that is all fairly important stuff. I think what was interesting in terms of, well... Therefore, do, have you changed your mind on this? It's not that people have or they haven't. And one interesting thing about the leavers, actually, is quite a few of those guys, the non-voters who maybe voted for the first time, um, lost confidence that if there was another poll, they're saying they wouldn't. They'd abstain. They, they'd abstain, which I think is... And given how close the result is, that is not insignificant. But I think that there's a bigger thing here. And, of course, 
it's quite convenient that the, the the findings because it was all to do with the fault of the government. It was all you know the, the overall story is, but for a more competent government, this would all be okay. And that there's a real issue here is what is it that gives people the uh, ability to give themselves permission to take a different view on this? Now my view is is that it was perfectly rational, and you know legitimate to believe what you were told in good faith in 2016 and to come to a view on a hypothetical situation. But the fact is that now we are in a different situation. So it's not that you were wrong in 2016. Mm. It's in 2017 and beyond, it's a different situation. This is not the same as 2016. And the question is, what is it that tips people over that they go, right, okay, I made that decision in 2016, but actually this is a different thing. This is, we've got a different scenario here that I wasn't really considering in 2016. Um, and I want to kind of look at this again. And I, I certainly don't think people want to relitigate the referendum, but I certainly think there is an appetite for proper scrutiny of what the final deal and the final outcome is. How likely is a second you know, Do they really want to leave this whole thing to a bunch of, you know, Westminster elite, a la, you know, Rees-Mogg, well, Ian Duncan Smith, Redwood? Think, do they really want to leave and put the future of the country in their hands? I don't know. I think if John Curtis was in government, it would be good. Then it would be fine. Then I think it would be all very easy. That's the answer. How likely is a second yeah. referendum, do you reckon? I don't think you could have a second referendum. You could potentially give people, which, which would just what? really escape really the first. deal. Uh, I mean, technically, it would be, if you're looking at referendums on the EU, it would be the third. Yeah. Um, but um, I think there, depending on where we get, there could be great appetite for the people to have the final say on the deal. So what do you want to happen? Do you want exit from Brexit? I'd love us not to be leaving. I've been very clear about that. And if I had the vote again now myself, I'd vote to remain. But this is a process that we've been charged to deliver by the people. And I think it's easy for me to say, look, I, I want to stop Brexit. I want us to remain. But I don't get to decide this. The British people do. No, but you get to say what you want to happen and what you're going to work I don't want to, to what you're going to work towards. So you are working towards stopping Brexit. I'm That's working. I'm well. There's a number of things. First of all, I set up Vote Leave Watch, which was a campaign yeah. group. We've rebadged it Leave Watch um, to scrutinise the promises that were made and hold people to account. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you say Boris Johnson's your second-hand car salesman, you've gone to buy the new Audi. We're like trading standards. We kind of see ourselves in that way. And then secondly, I think we've got a real job of work to do here in the House of Commons to scrutinise what's being put on the table. Okay. Could Labour swing round to your position and still keep it Northern Leave voters? I think it depends how you frame it. So I think certainly with a lot of uh, Leave voters in the North, um, extra funding for public services was a quite clincher mm-hmm. for a lot of people. But immigration, you cannot run away from the immigration issue. Um, I think we've generally got a far bigger problem with immigration than the Brexit vote. I think, you know, there's far too much debate in this country about the numbers, which is a important debate and um, a very legitimate one. But we don't do enough to talk about what happens with people when they actually arrive in our country and how we integrate them into society. And I actually think if we were a more integrated society, immigration wouldn't be the, quite the same potent issue it is. I think that's partly why areas like mine... Um, you know, 40% ethnic minorities in Lambeth, um, you know, and if it, then if you include non-ethnic minority immigration, why immigration is bigger. Um, and yet, you would have thought that if immigration was going to challenge any area, it was going to challenge our area. Mm. And yet you had other areas with much lower levels of immigration 
um, voting mm. to leave on that issue. And I think part of the reason that we took a different view, although we have pretty much you know similar social problems and more extreme social problems in many of the areas that scored the highest leave votes, is because we're quite integrated and we're used to immigration in my community. And we know that just getting rid of all the immigrants in Lambeth well, probably until getting rid of all of every borough, you know, every person in the borough. But <laughs> we know, like, like we, horror movie we know, yeah, we know we've got a lot of problems with housing, with wages, with etc. But we know that just getting rid of EU citizens is not going to solve out that problem. But we started with your leave voters and ended up in Lambeth. But you've mm. still got that issue about true. Well, but the yeah. interesting thing is, I I, sp- I made a point last summer of going to Boston, um, uh, which is because you know. Lambeth. I'm journalists now rather than immigrants. Well, actually, well, I didn't actually talk to any journalists while I was there. I talked to the people um, with their MP, um, Matt Warren. And um, I, you know, I made a point because I represent the, the borough local authority with the highest remain vote, so I went to the one with the highest leave vote. And it's really interesting. I spent a whole day there and I, I met with five different groups. A group of young people who had pretty much the same view on these things as the people in Lambeth. A group of over 65s. I'll come to them in a minute. They were very interesting. Um, and then a group of stakeholders and a few other, you know, people who provided, um, you know, the head, the principal of the FE College, the chief inspector, mm. all that kind of stuff. And the really interesting thing I found there is obviously Boston got written up, particularly in the referendum, as the kind of anti-immigrant capital mm, of the yeah. UK. And I, I just did not find a bunch of bigots and racists. I just didn't. Um, what I found was a much more complex picture of a community that had seen since 2004, for the 12 years from 2004, had had a 460% increase in immigration, mm-hmm. had not been provided with the resources to deal with that, hadn't been provided with the support, with low levels of integration, and no mechanism for really dealing with those issues. And you know, you'd expect the over 65s group you know, particularly maybe to have a particular view now. There was one lady there who, you know, some might describe as a racist. Um, she had something to say about black people and was saying this to me without seemingly recognising my background. But in a way, that was quite nice because I, I, she was being very frank with me. Mm. And that's what I wanted. But they, a lot of the complaints were, I have a Polish neighbour and I have to wait for their child to get back from school to interpret for me so I can have a conversation with them about some issue down the road. Mm. Um, and I, I just want to be able to understand and know people. And, and it, that's kind of, the integration aspect came up actually more than anything else. Do they listen to you? Oh, I don't profess to be the big authority and you need a range of voices to be making the argument from all over the country. I, who, who am I to go to Boston and tell them what to do? Um, it's far better to have the young people I spoke to in Boston who had very strong views about this, far better for them to go out and make the argument than me. But it's not about authority, is it? I mean, I think, if I can interpret your question for you, the, the issue here is the temptation when people see you to say, well, he would say that, whatever was going on. I mean, frankly, I think a lot of people will say that anyway, particularly look, on immigration. I'm, people look at me, I'm quarter Irish, quarter English and half Nigerian. I'm not going to come out with anti-immigration and stuff. People know that. Yeah, but on Brexit, everyone knows you're a high-profile Remainer. Mm. Uh, if you go to someone and say, I think it's probably best if we stay, don't you get met with, well, yeah, and? Maybe if I draw another analogy with football. I think it's possible no, for a Palace okay. fan to, to have a judge, you know, as I am, to be able yes. to pass judgment when they're yeah. watching Arsenal or Man U play. And just because maybe, okay, okay, maybe that's not the best analogy. I, I, I think it's possible to be an Arsenal fan and to be able to reach a view on whether Tottenham are playing well or not. You don't just dismiss somebody because they've voiced a view on Tottenham because they're an Arsenal fan. You don't just knee-jerk no, do that. No, you don't that. dismiss it. Yeah, you see, I've never seen Man United play well. 
<laughs> oh, there we go. There we go. I'm, no, I'm probably using the wrong analogies here, but I think so long as you're honest with people about your position, and I've always been very upfront and honest about my position. Um, you know, I like you said, I, I, I don't want to see Brexit happen. I think it will be terrible for our country, but I acknowledge it may happen. And I know that I'm not, you know, am I personally going to dictate this? No, we're going to collectively dictate it. I think so. So long as you you're honest with people and you make a reasonable argument. Um, I generally think the British people are fairly reasonable people. What we know about the polling and research on, on how people behave on this, you've got two groups who there's no point talking to a two in the way because they are not. Mm. They are just going to dismiss you. You've got a hardcore group of Leave voters who, you know, they're the ones who tell you mm. posters that even if it meant their son or daughter yeah. was going to lose their job, they would still be voting Leave. They're not going to change their minds. You've got a, a, a kind of the Romaniacs, as they've sometimes been called, you know, hardcore remain people who think this is absolutely awful. They think anybody voted leave is uneducated or you know whatever. You can put those guys to to one side. It's the people in the middle really, mm-hmm. um, who 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 were not very firmly of one view or the other, but made a decision fairly rationally um, on what they wanted to see happen. They're the people you're talking to, and I I generally find that those people are quite open minded to be honest. Jeremy Corbyn could do that, couldn't he? Jeremy definitely could do it. I mean, if he could be persuaded, because he would have to be persuaded first. Yeah, Jeremy it would be enormously credible for him to go out. Yes, did he vote leave? I don't know. Must have a, a, a suspicion, surely. I think Jeremy's on the move on all of this, to be honest. <laughs> but far I think his yeah, starting point, point is point that the better. EU is some nasty capitalist club. And, yeah. and, and, and I just think that's a fairly anachronistic view of the European Union now. And if you look at all of the stuff that's doing, just like, re, you know, recently, um, you read them clamping down on tax havens for lack of disclosure. I mean, mm. this is not the behaviour of some kind of free market, buccaneering, you know, capitalist, red, you know, red-blooded capitalist outfit. I think he's also quite in... He's been quite affected by his conversations with social democrats and socialists around Europe as well. But there are two ways of reading this, aren't there? One is he's going to keep taking small steps just to keep enough Remainers on board in case there's an election. And yeah, that's but you're going, to have to, you're going to have to pick a side on this at some point because history won't be kind to you. Talking and editing, talking and editing. How much do you think it's the case that there are Tories who would be winnable over who are more reluctant because of the nature of the leadership of your party? I think for a lot of Tories, this goes beyond party political considerations, to be honest. But you don't think that for some of them, it will be the case that, oh my God, hard Brexit is bad. But well, put it this way. If Brexit goes through and it's as disastrous as we think it may be, I can't think of a greater factor helping to usher Jeremy into number 10 than that. Mm-hmm. So I, my, my, my reply, you know, and obviously I want the Labour Party to do well, I'm coming from a different position to those Tory MPs, but if their worry is that what they do could usher him into number 10. My own view is if a hard Brexit goes through, there's nothing more certain to usher Jeremy into number 10 than a hard Brexit, which will have disastrous implications for our communities, our society. The problem with that, of course, is it gives him no incentive to actually make it clear he doesn't well, he's trying to stop it. Frankly, well, paradoxically, actually, I can have my cake and eat it on this one. <laughs> oh, because he's a cakeist. The cake, it's all about analogies today. But um, Cakes uh, the, 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 the incentive for Jeremy to resist the hard Brexit or try and stop the thing altogether is that if we do get into government, there is nothing more guaranteed to put torpedo our domestic programme mm-hmm. than Brexit. Isn't the problem at the moment, at least in some parts of the leadership, that a hard Brexit is seen as being a price worth paying for a Corbyn government? If that's the way to do it, so be it. 
I think there are some people who subscribe to that view. Yes. Mm-hmm. But how many of them and who they are, um, I'm not going to speculate on that. But uh, I just think... Go on, know, name some names. Uh, Go on. I'm not going to do that. But, uh, but uh, um, everybody, kinda, everybody knows who the, the, the individuals are and they're not necessarily members of Shadow Cabinet. But um, I just think ultimately there are a number of things that play with MPs. Um, one is self-interest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and linked to that, you know, if you haven't served in a role either as a shadow minister or a minister and you think there's a prospect of that in the future, you don't want to blot your copybook. Mm-hmm. I think thirdly, there is just like a cultural tribalism mm-hmm. amongst people in the Conservative and the Labour Party, which sometimes can overwhelm what they believe is actually the right thing for the country. Um, and of course, those things play on everyone. I think the refreshing thing on the Brexit issue is that genuinely you have people who've gone, I don't care about any of those things, I I just believe so strongly uh, in my position on this issue because it is a national interest situation. Um, And so it's a little bit like, I mean obviously it's a a bit different, but when you make a decision as to whether to vote for military action, you don't just blindly follow the whip. Mm. Um, So... Um, but I think on this one, there are, you know, there's a lot of people who, who I am one of them, I don't really care about the impact of my decision and my position on Brexit, on my, you know, my future positions in the Labour Party or, or I mean, this just comes before everything and what drives it is my, my, on my belly. But I mean, that was going to be my next question, where it leaves you personally, because mm. you didn't come into politics to do this, to try and stop this. Well, I came into politics because fundamentally, I think we are mutually dependent as individuals, and you can't just every—it's not just every man in his castle. You can't lead a happy, fulfilled mm. life unless we're actually supporting people collectively to do that. And I think that applies as much to states as it does individuals. So it all does go back to my values, and there's there's the one which is whether international cooperation in an era of globalization is a primary method through which we actually improve people's lives. I fundamentally believe it is, but also the knock-on impact on your domestic framework to reduce inequality, poverty, and make sure that you know the circumstances of your birth don't take your future are so directly impacted by this. So in a sense, I did come into politics to do what I'm doing. But can I put his question in a more pointed way mm. and see if you want to answer it? Mm. He didn't come into politics to sit on the back benches and watch Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn take us out of the European Union. No, um, but uh, I didn't I equally that 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 doesn't dictate you sit in your hands. I'm trying to do everything I possibly can to make sure that this doesn't damage our country. Is it cool being a rebel, being a saboteur? <laughs> I don't really. Come on, you must have you got little badges and stuff. Well, being a rebel. Yeah. Handshakes. <laughs> it's, bit, it's a bit bizarre. I'm not naturally a rebel. It's, it's often quite unpleasant. You know, yeah, when I, I did mean, what I did on the Queen's speech, uh, you know, one colleague called me a fucking wanker. Who? To my face. Who? Um, I'm not going to tell oh, you. Oh, God. But, uh, you Was know. It a matter of No, but it, got it, put, it, put, it put him in a difficult situation. Because it was like, you know... As a man then, right? Um, and frankly, I don't think I should not do things because it puts somebody in a difficult position if I can get, if it's the, the, you know, a terrible thing for my constituency and the people I represent. Have you had more widespread abuse? 
from online. The public. I mean, we we had Gisela on, and she said she's had. Yeah, I feel like she's never known as a result. Yeah, but but the, the, the echo chamber. Well, the echo chamber nature of social media means that I think I probably don't see half the stuff. Yeah. Get. But we've had death threats. I've had a death threat, um, which we've reported to the police. Um, Brexit linked. Uh, actually, that was linked to Jeremy. Um, that was one of his <laughs> oh, supporters. Right. Quite a regular occurrence. It's not unusual. Loads of colleagues have had it from yeah. supporters of Jeremy. Um, <laughs> but again, I mean, it's that thing you didn't sign up to do this. You didn't join politics to have to deal with this sort of issue. True, and that goes for both sides, I think. Yeah, but, e- but equally, equally I, I, I think you go down a very dangerous road if you allow these people to prevail. It's a bit like Nigel Farage, you know, what he has said about what happens if Brexit doesn't happen, yeah. violence on the street. Yeah. You get to the point where you start normalising and excusing yeah. that type of thing. Mm. And I think y- you do worry about your own personal safety. I mean, particularly after the death of Joe Cox. You talk about the effect on your constituency. The big question that I sent over beforehand that I think we all want to know is Streatham Kite Day. How is that going to be affected by Brexit? Because you get these Dutch kite teams come over, right? Yeah. And they're not going to be able to. And it just kind of illustrates. They may the, not be able to come the, over. The way Brexit is going to impact on everything, isn't it? It's, that's a good example. Um, I can give you another example. I mean, um, in our borough, we've got tangle teasers. Now, I'm looking at your heads. I know a tangle like, teaser. I know a tangle We've got a house full of tangle uh, teasers. Okay, right. Yeah. So, for the benefit of listeners, you have three men sitting around this mic who don't have much hair. <laughs> but for people like my wife, who has considerably more hair than me, tangle teasers are like, well, I'm no, either people listening to this who know them. But anyway, these guys. They export all over the world. Well, what tangled teasers are made in Streatham? Uh, they are based in Lambeth. Wow. They've just moved actually from my constituency to Kate Hoey's. So, what's um, the WTO tariff on a tangled teaser? Well, I don't know, but obviously, if we're not in the customs union, yeah. we're not in the single market, it's going to have a huge impact on that business. Right. And already, like on Streatham High Road, which is the longest piece of continuous high road in Europe, I've had you know, stores telling me they're now charging, they're having to charge more just because of the depreciation of the pound sterling. So it's already very much impacting. The big issue, though, is definitely EU citizens at the moment because there's just so many people who've got a EU citizen in their family. And I've had, you know, people crying on me uh, over it. Just on the, the, the local issues, obviously, there's one immigrant you're glad to see in the back of, and that's Frank de Boer, right? He's <laughs> <laughs> a rubbish immigrant. He can go back to wherever he came from. Um, <laughs> it's always an emotional journey being a Palace fan. Um, let's do the features. The best thing and the worst thing about Brexit. Best thing! Oh. Worst thing. What will be the best thing about Brexit? Because you have, truly, there will be some. I think one of the really place. good things about Brexit is that it has brought people together across party lines to work together on a substantial issue in the national interest. And as much as I think people are getting bored or are bored of Brexit, I think it is quite refreshing to see it playing out in a different way and not along Labour Tory lines. I think people generally found that quite refreshing during the referendum campaign. New party? Start a new party? I think that's highly unlikely. I don't think our constitution really provides for that. Have you um, flirted with the idea of a new party over the last no, whatever, 18 months? No, I just not don't. At all. I'm not persuaded that something like a kind of Macron style or Marsh. I'm like, you know, I, I know Emmanuel is a friend of mine, but I'm not sure we could do what he's done here or necessarily whether it would be desirable. Um, and the worst thing? 
I think the one. the adverse economic impact is undoubtedly going to have on millions of people. Okay, and now can you remember the name of this feature? I will try you see if you can get it right because I always get it wrong. The next I one know, I always it is it. in it's the unlikely event this podcast has failed to prove sufficiently enlightening. I think something like that. Mm. In the unlikely event this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. Recommendations to understand Brexit because let's face it it's massive Chucker what would be your recommendation if you want to understand Brexit what should you read watch listen to I'd say there are two things if you want to understand how the rest of Europe sees us mm. and views the various dramas and trials and tribulations of Brexit in the UK Charles Grant who is the head of the Centre for um, European Reform, Reform, Reform. Yeah. I think he's, you know, he and Alan, of course. Um, <laughs> we can I think they both, they both will give you um, a pretty good okay. sense of what others are saying. And I think it's important to understand that because mm-hmm. we, uh, we kind of see one side of the story here and to really come to a beyond Brexit, you need to understand how the other side's here. And I think secondly, I do actually think that BBC's reality check Oh, okay. um, you know, updates on different issues yeah. really do break it down and make it quite simple. Though it's worth saying at this point that Chris Morris from Reality Check did appallingly badly in our Brexit pub quiz. And have you got any new recommendations? You must be running out by now. But you, uh, every time you come on, you have to give us a, a new whole one. new strategy. Now we have oh, okay. a colleague in Belfast called Katie Hayward. Oh, yeah. And if you want to understand the border, read anything she's written about it. And veering a bit close to the not recommending your own stuff rule there, I'd say. But uh, I think we'll let it pass. Uh, so there's Chukaramuna. I confess, when we came out of that interview, I said to Anand that I thought Chuka is a good and competent politician. But I wasn't sure he'd said much of substance there. Then I listened back to it. Death threats from Jeremy Corbyn supporters. The I know Emmanuel, he's a friend of mine line. Boris and Gove are like President and Prime Minister. Jeremy Corbyn is on the move on his EU views. Never mind his chat about his trip to Boston, Lincolnshire. Um, I thought I'd better just clarify that the Boston he was talking about was not the one in the USA. And just for the avoidance of any doubt, I was joking about Frank de Boer. He is, of course, very welcome in this country, just not managing Crystal Palace Football Club as he did so disastrously at the start of this season. Interesting that both Chuka Umuna and Nigel Farage profess to be Crystal Palace fans. Um, there's something there. Even those opposed on the big political issues of the day can find things in common. Perhaps that's a wise message to bear in mind as we head into 2018. If you've got thoughts on what lays ahead Brexit-wise in 2018 or you want to suggest guests we should have on the podcast in 2018, or you just want to get in touch for a chat about Chukarabuna or anything else Brexit-wise, please get in touch. You'll get me at UK in a Changing Europe podcasts at gmail.com on the email, or probably easier to just tweet me at Political Yeti. You can find all the podcasts and the recommendations accumulated in one place on my website, which is james-miller.com. For the UK in a changing Europe, for all their research, information and the podcasts, go to ukandeu.ac.uk or tweet them at UK and EU. 
And please like, subscribe, rate and review this podcast on whichever podcast platform you are using. The music this week has been, once again, Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandango Orchestra. Any thoughts, any recommendations for changing that? Again, get in touch. I've been James Miller, author, journalist, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. This has been the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK in a changing Europe, supported by King's College London and funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. Come back in two weeks for another edition of the Brexit Breakdown podcast. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.